I'll start by asking a question for you to think about. What day of your life did you anticipate most? Just to give you some uh, pointers, maybe it was the day you got some exam results or you were going to get some exam results. Maybe it was the day you were looking forward to setting off on a dream holiday. Maybe it was your wedding day or the birth of a child. Maybe it was the day you would move into a new house or get the keys to a new car. Maybe it was some event you managed to get a ticket for, maybe a once-in-a-lifetime concert or a football game. Maybe, actually, you can think of lots of days you looked forward to with great anticipation. So just pick one of them for a moment. And as you think of that day, remember the anticipation you felt in the build-up to it. Remember your excitement. And then think about this. When that day came, did it live up to your expectations? Was it all you hoped it would be? If it was all you hoped it would be, how long did the satisfaction last for you? I would guess that most of us would say, often those days we look forward to don't quite live up to our expectations. I can think of concerts I have looked forward to for weeks, maybe months, but sometimes when the concert actually came, the sound was so bad, I wished I'd stayed at home and listened to it on a CD instead. Or I've needed to go to the toilet so badly, I was just wanting it to end so I could get out. I remember one time the person I went with was feeling sick, we had to leave early. Wedding days, they can go past in a blur. I remember when Megan was giving birth, I found the whole thing so exhausting, I kept falling asleep. (laughs) Missed it. I was there for the really important bit, but... And even new homes and new cars, they can lose their luster pretty quickly for us especially when we notice someone else driving a better car than the one we've just got, or someone else getting an extension on their house. And even if the things we anticipate are all that we hoped for, even in those times where they don't end up to be unsatisfying, even when they're all we hoped they would be, aren't they over so quickly? We can't hold on to the satisfaction they give us. The Bible tells us that is the way life is. There are lots of wonderful things for us to experience and enjoy in God's world. And lots of them are good gifts from God. But even the best of them leave us a little unsatisfied. The book of Ecclesiastes says that chasing satisfaction in this life is like chasing after the wind. You'll never be able to catch it. Someone has said, the Bible points out a deep 
discontent in the human heart for a better time, a better age, and a better way of living. And one of the solutions Ecclesiastes gives us is to tell us that we should adjust our expectations. We will enjoy this life a bit more if we don't expect it to satisfy us. If we learn to enjoy what we have rather than chasing things we don't have, expecting them to fulfill us. But that's not all the Bible has to say. It has more to tell us than simply don't expect too much from this life. The Bible promises there is a life to come that will be truly satisfying. It will not only live up to our expectations, it will exceed them. It will exceed our expectations because our imaginations are just not big enough. They're just not creative enough to properly foresee what God has in store for us. But we have his promise. He will give us life more full and more satisfying than anything we experience in this life. And along with that promise, God has given us help so we can begin to picture what that perfect life will be like. We'll never be able to picture it fully in this life, but we can begin to picture it. And that brings us to 1 Corinthians. For the last three weeks, we've been looking at chapter 15 of this letter. It's a chapter focusing on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, both the fact of his resurrection and what his resurrection means for us. One of the points Paul has made so far in the chapter is that Jesus' resurrection guarantees resurrection for all those who belong to Jesus. He is the first fruits of a great harvest of resurrection. And last week, Paul helped us get some sort of grasp on what it will be like to have a resurrection body. It will have some definite continuity with the body we have now, and yet it will be different in the sense of being so much more glorious. The analogy Paul used to try to help us was the analogy between a seed that is sown in the ground and a plant that blossoms from that seed. We can think of this body like a seed from which God will bring a greater resurrection body. In fact, Paul said, what we sow in the ground is a naked seed. And we can think of what blossoms from the ground as that original seed finally clothed with honor, glory, and power. It will not be less than what we have now. It will be so much more. And now, having given us help to imagine our resurrection bodies, now as the chapter comes to its climax and its close, Paul focuses on resurrection day. If you're using one of the church Bibles, it's page 1157, and in the larger print Bibles, 1789. First Corinthians 15, and we will read from verse 50 
down to the end of the chapter, verse 58. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is God's Word. And it tells us three truths about Resurrection Day. It will be the day we inherit an eternal kingdom. It will be the day death and its allies will die. And it is the day that makes today worthwhile. First of all, Resurrection Day will be the day we inherit an eternal kingdom. There's a reason Paul spent verses 35 to 49 of this chapter talking about our resurrection bodies. There's a reason God is going to give us those resurrection bodies. It's because of what God is going to do to everything else in the universe. God revealed his plan back in the Old Testament. Long before Jesus came, through the prophet Isaiah, God said, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The heavens and the earth in the Bible is a way of referring to the whole of creation. But we might wonder what this promise means. Does it mean an entirely new start with no connection to what went before? Well, when Jesus came, he clarified what it means for God to create new heavens and a new earth. Jesus spoke about the renewal of all things. And in his letter to the Romans, Paul said, creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay. So both Jesus and Paul tell us to expect the renewal and the liberation of this creation. Now in other places we're told that will involve massive upheaval. It will involve cleansing fire. But there will still be continuity with the creation we live in today. God's new creation will be like a flower that blossoms from the seed of this broken, decaying creation. 
So we're not looking forward to taking off to be in some alien place, some strange spirit world. We look forward to this world renewed, transformed, and made fit for God's presence. The last book of the Bible pictures heaven coming to earth. It announces not God removing his people. It announces God coming to dwell with his people, among them. That is the kingdom Jesus Christ is going to bring about. That's the kingdom Jesus is going to hand over to his Father after he has crushed all evil and brought perfect peace and righteousness. Jesus will bring that kingdom about. He will hand it over to his Father, and you and I will inherit it. That's what verse 50 says. The reason we're going to receive imperishable, glorious bodies is because we're going to inherit an imperishable, glorious kingdom. When verse 50 says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, the sense is mere flesh and blood cannot inherit it. Flesh and blood needs to be enhanced. It needs to put on new resurrection power. How do we know that's what Paul means? Well, look down to verse 53. The perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Paul is talking about our resurrection bodies. But the way he puts it is significant. These perishable mortal bodies will be clothed with imperishability and immortality. Commentators point out that in ancient culture, when someone was going to come into an inheritance, they were given special inheritance robes to wear. Those robes announced that person's status. They showed that the person wearing the robes was the heir. And here Paul says, our resurrection bodies are going to be our resurrection inheritance robes. They're going to show our status as heirs of God's kingdom. We will not be out of place in God's new heaven and earth. We will be perfectly suited to it. We will belong. We will be made for it. Maybe you spend your life feeling that you don't belong. Like you can never quite find your place. That can be a heartbreaking pain to live with. But the Bible promises us when God's eternal kingdom arrives, you will never have that pain again. You will truly belong. We'll all belong. God will see to it. He will transform us into men, women, and children who are more at home in his kingdom than we've ever been on this earth. We will find we have finally and wonderfully come home. 
We're not outsiders anymore. We are heirs. And look what Paul says about how this will come about. Verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Paul says he's telling us a mystery. And so much about this will remain a mystery until we experience it. God has not chosen to tell us every little detail about this. He has not chosen to answer every question that we have. But he has revealed some of the mystery. Through the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, the New Testament writers are able to give us true insight into what's ahead. Paul says in verse 51, we will not all sleep. We've seen already in this chapter, sleep is a way of talking about death. Christians used the term because it included the expectation of waking again. And here, when Paul says we will not all sleep, he means not everyone who belongs to Christ will have died before Christ returns. Whenever he comes, there will be a generation of his people alive at that time. What's going to happen to those living heirs of God's kingdom? We know those who die trusting in Christ are going to be raised with new bodies fit for a new kingdom. What about those who don't need to be raised because they're still alive? Paul says they will be changed. They will not just step into God's kingdom as they are. They couldn't. Even when these bodies are at their very, very best, even when they're glowing with strength and fitness, they're still not fit for God's new creation. So although the living will not have to be raised, they will be changed. Perishable, weak bodies will blossom into imperishable, glorious, powerful bodies. Verse 52 says this will happen in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, in an instant of time. That was God's promise in the Old Testament. We read earlier Isaiah uh, prophesied about the future. We didn't read this passage, but a little further on in Isaiah. When he looked to the future, Isaiah said, suddenly, in an instant, the Lord Almighty will come. For those who do not belong to Christ when he comes, there will be no more chances to turn to him. And for those who do belong to him, there will be no more waiting. In an instant of time, we will blossom into our new resurrection life. We will enter our eternal inheritance clothed with our inheritance robes. And notice what will signal this instantaneous change. Verse 52 says, the last trumpet will sound. 
One thing that tells us is that Christ's return will be unmissable. Sometimes people wonder, is it going to happen quietly and in secret? Well, the consistent message of Scripture is certainly not. This is not the only place where the New Testament mentions this trumpet call. Jesus himself said his arrival would be like lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. The book of Revelation says, every eye will see him, and nothing will ever be the same again. So if anyone ever tries to tell you Jesus already came back and no one noticed, you can politely put them straight. The Bible says when he comes, everyone will notice. But there's something else about this trumpet. It will announce Christ's complete victory. Back in verse 24, Paul said Jesus will come again to destroy all dominion, authority, and power. So that means the trumpet is going to announce his triumph over human enemies of God, those who resist him and defy him to the bitter end. The trumpet will also announce triumph over all spiritual powers that are enemies of God. But Paul's focus here is on Christ's triumph over death. Back in verse 26, Paul called death the last enemy. And part of the teaching in this chapter is that Christ has already broken the power of death. He did that by rising from the grave. But you don't need me to tell you we still live in the shadow of death. It's an ugly, painful reality in this present world. In fact, our experience of death is that it's an irresistible enemy. Despite all of our medical advances in the last hundreds of years, the great strides that have been made, despite all of that, the death rate is still 100%. We know Jesus has broken death's power, but we're still waiting to receive and experience the fruit of Christ's victory. We're still waiting for the destruction of death. And Paul tells us that will happen on resurrection day. It's the day death and its allies will die. Look at verse 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. In verse 54, Paul says death will be swallowed up on resurrection day. It will vanish without trace, like a mouse disappearing into a lion's mouth. Death will vanish, 
And equally important, so will every ally of death. What do I mean by that? Well, in verse 55, Paul talks about the sting of death. Then in verse 56, he says the sting of death is sin. Sin is an ally of death. They're partners. They work together. Death is here because of sin. And sin leads to death in the end. But on resurrection day, death's partner, sin, will be destroyed along with death. Just let yourself imagine that. It's hard to imagine. Because you and I have never lived a day of our lives without the shadow of death hanging over our life. We've never lived a day without the presence of sin in our lives. But when Christ returns, both of those old allies are going to go down together. We will be both deathless and sinless. And that means we will also be guiltless. Paul says in verse 56, the power of sin is the law. He means the Old Testament law contained primarily in Exodus through to Deuteronomy. Now we might think of that part of Scripture if we've ever tried to read it. We might think of it as a pretty hard slog. We might wonder as we're reading it, what does it have to do with us? But when we read the law, it's very helpful to ask ourselves what kind of God would give these commands. If this is what God wants... What does that say about God? For example, what kind of God would command us not to murder? What kind of God would command us not to steal? What kind of God would command merchants to use honest skills in their business dealings? What kind of God would command employers not to hold back wages from their employees? What kind of God would command us not to spread slander, but instead to love our neighbors as we love ourselves? Yes, Jesus said that, but it first appeared in the Old Testament law in the book of Leviticus. What kind of God would command those things? The kind of God who hates murder and stealing and dishonest business and oppression of workers, and slander. The kind of God who loves honesty and justice and compassion. And he wants us to love those things too. The law is an expression of God's character. And it's a call for us to be like him. To love what he loves and hate what he hates. The law is a very good thing. But when you and I defy the law, when we defy its call to be people who share God's character, then the law becomes our death sentence. It declares us to be guilty without any doubt. It stands over us as our condemnation. Because we are not what God calls us to be. 
That's what Paul means when he says the power of sin is the law. In another place, Paul says, sin used what is good to bring about my death. In our sinfulness, God's good law just provokes us to do the opposite. Instead of loving God's law, we defy it. And in defying it, we heap up guilt for ourselves. And even as Christians, people who seek to follow God and live for Him, don't we know all about guilt? Don't we know all about falling short of what God calls us to? Don't we know about defiance rising up in our hearts? Those moments and those days, maybe weeks and months, where the attitude of our hearts is, shove off, God. I'm in charge, not you. We know about those things, and so we know the experience of feeling guilty. And knowing that actually, yes, we are guilty. Here and now, we live every day in the company of death and its allies, sin and guilt. But on resurrection day, death and its allies will die. In verse 57, after reminding us all about death and its allies, Paul says, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. On the cross, Christ defeated our sin by paying for it himself. He bought us from our guilt. He bought us for freedom from that guilt. And through his resurrection, Christ defeated death. He has won total victory. And on resurrection day, we will enter into the full fruit of his victory. Today, we know about it. On resurrection day, we will truly and fully experience it in our own lives. Death and its allies will finally be swallowed up by Christ's victory. They will be gone from our experience forever. Vanished without trace. And that truth tells us something else. Because of all that resurrection day will bring, because it's the day we inherit an eternal kingdom, because it's the day death and its allies will die, it is also the day that makes today worthwhile. Look at verse 58. Therefore, in other words, because of all that resurrection day means, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is the point Paul has been making all through this chapter. Our belief about the resurrection makes all the difference now. Earlier, Paul made that point with regard to Christ's resurrection. If we believe he was raised... 
we have hope that we too will be raised. And so we live differently. We live with hopeful expectation. Here, at the end of the chapter, Paul has built on that. He's made the point that what we understand about our coming resurrection adds a whole new power to our hopeful expectation. We will inherit a kingdom, an imperishable one, with bodies fit for that imperishable kingdom. We will finally belong like we never have before. And we will be free of fear, free of sin, free of guilt in a way we never have been before. And now at the end of the chapter, Paul makes the application for us here and now. He says, let that assurance of victory fill you with grit and resilience now, today, so that you stand firm in your faith, so that even if all sorts of things are crumbling in your life or being swept away from you, even if those things are happening, you persevere because you know your future inheritance is imperishable. Nothing is going to ever crumble or be swept away from you there. We persevere knowing there's a day all our enemies are going to be swallowed up, destroyed forever. Whether those are human enemies that dog us through the years, whether it's physical enemies like the decay of our bodies, whether it's enemies that hinder our relationship with God, like sin. The truth about Resurrection Day enables us to stand firm. It makes our priorities crystal clear. It opens up a purpose and direction for our lives. It helps us always to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because we know our labor in the Lord is not in vain. In other words, it counts. It will never be wasted. When we labor for the Lord, we're already beginning to grow in the kind of life we'll enjoy perfectly in the future. As we labor for the Lord, we're already beginning to turn away from the selfishness and the greed and every other kind of sin that's going to be done away with on Resurrection Day. As we labor for the Lord, our lives are beginning to breathe the air of Resurrection Day. So setting our minds on the future is not a frivolous exercise. It's not escapism. It has the greatest value right here and now. It gives us a compass for our lives. It helps us not to waste our lives chasing stuff that's going to be swallowed up on Resurrection Day. Setting our minds on the future helps us spend our lives for things that will blossom on Resurrection Day. Bruce Milne says this about our labor in the Lord. 
Every kingdom work, whether publicly performed or privately endeavored, partakes of the kingdom's imperishable character. Every honest intention, every stumbling word of witness, every resistance of temptation, every motion of repentance, every gesture of concern, every routine engagement, every motion of worship, every struggle towards obedience, every mumbled prayer, everything, literally, which flows out of our faith relationship with the ever-living one will find its place in the ever-living heavenly order which will dawn at his coming. It is and will be so utterly worthwhile. Our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Resurrection day is the day that makes today worthwhile. So this week, if you're helping at Holiday Club, if you're praying for Holiday Club at home, give yourself fully to it, knowing your labor is not in vain. If you're at work this week, trying to do your work in an honest faithful, God-honoring way. If you're caring for a relative conscientiously out of obedience to Christ, if you're bringing up children in the training and instruction of the Lord, whatever it is, do it in the assurance it is and will be so utterly worthwhile because of Resurrection Day. It's the day that will exceed even our greatest expectations. And it will only be the beginning of our resurrection life. We're going to close with two songs that give us an opportunity to respond with thankfulness that we have a place in this kingdom and also with expectation for what this kingdom is going to be like. We'll sing Mystery of Mysteries, and then there is a day. <laughs>